Well, good morning, everyone. It is a beautiful day outside, and I'm at Bedford, which is great. I'm happy about that. Um, I will not go into how I feel about being at the east side last week, since we have 40 people who will report back whatever I say here. But I will say this, I'm glad to be worshiping here at Bedford this morning with you all. I loved hearing the, uh, that first song we kicked off with. Um, that is just a great, just a heartbeat thumper there. It's got a little black gospel vibe to it, which I like so much. Um, I'm loving that song, Your Love Defends Me. You know, I just sing back there, Your Love Defends Me, Your Love Defends Me. I love that. Great things. God has done great things. Amen? Amen. And then we all have a testimony. How many of you guys have shared your testimony this week with someone? I'm going to challenge you guys to do it this week. Hey, I want to say a special thanks to Quentin, if he's listening somewhere in the world. Uh, Last week, the message he brought here was just a great message. A reminder that when God calls us to a big task, he needs us to be ready for it. So what we are expected to do in public, we have to prepare for in private. And that is a great message for all of us. So I want to say thank you for being so welcoming to Quentin and Renee. I've known them for years, and I love them dearly, and uh, it's always nice when my friends get to meet my other friends, and the circle sort of conjoin. So we're in the book of Daniel, and we don't have a lot of time, so we're just going to jump right in. If you're looking for Daniel in your Bible, it's about at the three-quarters way through. It's sort of always hidden there among some other minor prophets, but if you can track it down, do so. Otherwise, we're going to have the words up here, or you can look on your device uh, your, your, uh, your own device to, to stay, catch up with us. And for those of you who have not been with us up until this moment, you've not missed too much. Well, you've missed a lot, but we're going to catch up real quick. So Daniel and his friends, we know them as, are taken as captives by the invading army of the Babylonians who destroy Jerusalem and take the very best and brightest of them back to Babylon Um, And instead of forcing them into slavery, they put them into a training and reprogramming program with the intention of raising these guys up to become leaders and advisors to the king, which is a very interesting and I don't think um, uh, normal way of thinking about captivity. But Nebuchadnezzar is a sly and clever guy, and I think in this instance I'm going to give him props for how he saw these young men who had so much potential. So Daniel and his three friends, we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remained faithful to God despite the best efforts to reprogram them into a Babylonian mindset. Now Babylon, in many instances in the Bible, is is a stand-in or a metaphor for just the world's system, the way the world thinks versus the way God's people should think. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel were faithful in resisting that, that determination by the king to make them think like these pagans, the Babylonians, and said they remained faithful to God. And when the crisis emerged, the crisis was this, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that unless someone can be found to both interpret it and tell Nebuchadnezzar what it was, they were going to be all killed. Not just Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but all the wise men, all the musicians, all the king's trusted advisors are going to be put to death because they have not been able to tell him what the dream actually was or, therefore, interpret it. That was an unrealistic demand and expectation, if you recall, two weeks ago. But Daniel is approached by one of the king's stewards, and um, with wisdom, he navigates this very difficult encounter with the king and gives them sort of a, um, 
a, a window to pray and see if God will answer and reveal to Daniel what God has, the dream God has given to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar agrees to this. So uh, Daniel returns very quickly to his friends, says, hey guys, we have to pray. We have to pray. And, and pray to God for mercy so that our lives may be spared. And not just our lives, but again, there's all these pagan advisors whose lives will be spared as well if Daniel can interpret the dream and tell Nebuchadnezzar what it was. So they pray. And during the night, the dream is revealed to Daniel. Can you picture that scene? I picture Daniel in this upper chamber of his, of his sort of college dormitory, which is where he was, he was at. He's sort of a university student. The window's open. There's a full moon shining out. If you're, if you're a, a movie director, I'm going to give you the opening scene to this film right here. The moon's shining bright. It's cast its light on Daniel, and, and all we see is Daniel's closed eyes, and all of a sudden, bah, his eyes pop open. He goes, I know the dream. So Daniel... Daniel wakes these buddies up and said, guys, God's revealed the dream to me. We're going to worship. And so this is what they do. Verse 20 in chapter 2. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. That's a good way to start your prayer, recognizing who God is. He changes times and seasons. I was telling the, the team back here this morning, um, the changing of times was a little difficult for me this morning, I will, I will uh, admit to you. Um, uh, but it's better than having to get up at 5.30 to be up at Sherwood Oaks at 7 o'clock. So, yeah, even with the time change, I still got more sleep this morning than I would in the past. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. If you've got your Bible or you've got your device, underline that line right there. He changes times and seasons, and he deposes kings and raises up others. This is sort of the theme we're going to hit hard and heavy on this morning. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So Daniel goes back to the king and he describes the dream. And if you don't want the dream is, look back over it. Um, for our purposes, the meaning of the dream is this. It's found in Daniel's prayer. If this was a murder mystery, we would go back and go, ah, we, it was there all the time and we didn't even see it. So Daniel gives us a clue to this mystery in his prayer. And it's found in verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and he raises up others. In the dream, Daniel describes a series of empires that will follow Nebuchadnezzar, ending with the final and eternal kingdom, God's kingdom. And that just kingdom is described as a great rock that breaks off from this mountain and rolls out and crushes all the other kingdoms. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Say that with me, never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but, say this with me, it will itself endure forever. 
This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. And Daniel closes his statement with this. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. This kingdom, this kingdom that the God of heaven will set up, will endure forever. On Wednesday nights, we, are, we have some great classes here. Men's ministry, if you guys are doing the men's class, just give me an amen. Okay, well, that was not as enthusiastic an amen as I really wanted. Let's try that again. Men's ministry, if you're doing a men's class on Wednesday night, give me a little something. There you go. They meet back here. Women's ministry, if you guys are doing a women's class, give me a shout. Oh, see, the ladies know where it's at. Uh, Rob Muncy is teaching you a class in here. I'm in that one. I'm telling you, we're going through the book of Matthew right now. And I am, I'm just learning so much uh, as Rob sort of takes us through and gives us some different perspectives on, on the book of Matthew. One of the chapters that we did a couple weeks ago was Matthew chapter 16. And at, uh, in the middle of that chapter, uh, Jesus says to Peter, who do you say, who do people say that I am? And Peter names off a whole bunch of Old Testament guys. And then um, Jesus says to Peter, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says this, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And God says this back. Jesus says this back. Uh, Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, for this has been revealed to you not by men, but by God. It says, on this rock, I will build my church. We spent a lot of time Wednesday, uh, Wednesday, a couple of weeks back, talking about what Jesus might have meant by that. You know, some, if you grew up Catholic, uh, the idea is that Peter was the rock on which the church was built. If you grew up not Catholic, you sort of push back on that and say, no, 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 no. it was Peter's confession on which the church was built. And I'm going to do something really uncomfortable I'm going to straddle those two because there is some truth to the fact that Peter was the one that Jesus used to establish and build his church. Remember on the day of Pentecost when all the peoples from all the countries are there in Jerusalem and Peter is gathered there with his disciples and they begin preaching and everyone's listening and they hear the sermon, the gospel presented in their own language. Peter is the one who is presenting the very first sermon of the young church. So I want to give Peter some props right here. But it's also this, this statement of faith. We believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So it's Peter, I believe, and Peter's confession. And that confession has become our confession too. In fact, Peter is so impacted by this, I believe, that later on in his writings, he includes some more imagery of a rock. He says this, um, uh, he says in 1 Peter 2, 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you are also like living stones. You are being built into a house, a spiritual house, to be a priesthood, a holy priesthood, offering sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought of yourself in that vision of Daniel's? That dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar of that rock? We are that rock. We're in that story. We're in that story back in Daniel. That rock that broke off, that is the kingdom, the eternal kingdom that God is setting up, we are part of that. So turn to your neighbor and say, hey, we were famous way back in Daniel. 
you don't, you don't have to do everything I say, but it's always nice when you do. We come to Jesus, the living stone, and we are also living stones. We're being built together, and we are part of Daniel's vision. Just like God revealed wisdom to Peter, God has revealed wisdom to Daniel. Now, that's the background. Now we're going to get into our text for this morning, and it's verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Now, this was something you would do for a God. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar makes this sort of interesting statement of faith, doesn't he? Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And then verse 48, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Now, I did a little background on this because I had some time and I wanted to waste it. So the area that Babylon would have encompassed is about the same size in area as Mitchell. Think about that. So think about the size of Mitchell. But the population of Babylon was the size of Fort Wayne, Indiana. So picture Fort Wayne people all moving to Mitchell and trying to squeeze into that little spot. That city had some real challenges, I suspect, and Daniel is now in charge of it. Moreover, verse 49, moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as administrators over this province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Daniel had demonstrated his value to the king. The king was convinced that Daniel had the ear of the gods, even the great God above all other gods, and he orders his sacrificial offering, a burnt incense to be burned in his honor, because if you communicate with the gods, then you must in some way be divine as well. And he gave him honors and wealth. So let's step back and let's step into Daniel's shoes. What must Daniel have been thinking in all of this? You know, this is one of the earlier writings of, of the Bible, and, and, and you don't really get into, the authors of, this, of the Bible stories don't really talk about the psychology of the people. They, it's really about God more than about Daniel, which is entirely appropriate. But, but if I'm reading Daniel, I have to think to myself, if I were in Daniel's shoes, what would I be thinking? But we really don't know. We don't know how Daniel responded to all, this, the, all the king's accolades. Now, my mom always said that when people appreciate what you've done, a simple thank you or you're welcome is sufficient. But, but my mom was never honored as a god, so, so what does she know? <laughs> but what we do know is that Daniel didn't resist. Instead, he submits to the king's honors accepts the title and the wealth that goes on with it, and there are a couple of reasons why, I think. This week I've read numerous commentaries on this, and the commentators are quick to say, Daniel is not taking honor away from God. I think they're absolutely right. But I think there's sort of an insight into why he doesn't. There's two reasons. Because Daniel, unlike us, Daniel is a vassal of the king. Now, if your boss were to come to you tomorrow and say, hey, I want to I 
appoint you to the next position up. I, wanna, I want you to become a manager over these people. You, you, would have, you would have some autonomy in that decision. In fact, maybe you're the one who actually put in your resume and said, hey, I want to apply for this b- better position. Daniel hadn't done any of that. Daniel hadn't scrambled and sort of connived to get moved into a better place or more influential, more influential place. He, he hadn't done that. Daniel is, for all intents and purposes, still a slave in the king's court. And so he has no power except what the king extends to him. And unlike the apostles who, over in Acts, we will read someday, perhaps, um, this afternoon if you want, uh, when the apostles share the good news with the people, the people receive this news with great joy and, again, mistake them for angels or demigods. And the apostles are quick to say, no, 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 no. We are men just like you. But Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel is perhaps not in a position to correct or instruct the king. He is for, as we said, um, our purposes, merely a slave or a servant to a king. And a servant to a king has to choose his words wisely. And the second thing, the second reason I think Daniel sort of submits to the king is because he knows this ultimate truth, that it is, it is not Nebuchadnezzar who is offering these honors. It is the God who rules over the kings of the earth. While Daniel is a servant to a king, he is also a servant to the king. And he knows this truth that we read about in the prayer earlier. He deposes kings and he raises others up. He knew that while Nebuchadnezzar's honor and adoration was short-lived, it meant little or nothing, much like the praise of man, it is fleeting. He knew that the approval of God had eternal consequences. There's a Zimbabwean author. Whenever you hear someone say, um, this is an old African proverb, Google it just to make sure. (laughs) This is one of those old African proverbs. I thought, is it really? Um, But in fact, it is. Uh, it's, uh, the, the author is Matshona Dilwahu. He's from Zimbabwe, and he says this, it is lightning that strikes, not thunder. Words mean nothing. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar especially, words mean nothing. Actions are what we can judge Nebuchadnezzar's life by. Actions are really what the world judges our life by. We can say a lot of stuff, but what we do is what the world sees and interprets. We'll see later that Nebuchadnezzar's words of honor to the The God above all kings, the Lord above all uh, kings is merely, um, it's merely thunder. It's not lightning. But in the here and now, we see see a couple things. Daniel was promoted and given honors and authority. And um, and in real estate terms, Daniel uh, Daniel does not have the right of first refusal. He simply simply has to accept what the king puts, puts to him. Speaking of real estate, uh, a couple years back, two years ago, I spent a beautiful sunny day hanging out in my country house in England, and I think we have a picture of it. Do we? Yeah. It's a lovely, it's a, it is a lovely, so cozy. That's what I love about it most. You just go and just relax. No, uh, I know you're shocked by this. This is not my country house. Um, it was awarded to John Churchill, who was the great, great, great grandfather of Winston Churchill, 
by Queen Anne for his triumphs in war. She gave him a title, and she gave him the funds to build this massive pile of rocks and gave him permission to call it a palace. So this is Blenheim Palace. It's the only private home not occupied by royals that is, a, is accorded the title palace. So you won't find any other home in England named a palace except the ones where the queen would actually live in. So uh, it honors, as honors and promotions go, this isn't a bad one. But if John Churchill had known the future, he might have passed on that honor. The house and the title and the obligations that went along with it became a drag and a drain on his family. The upkeep and maintenance have nearly bankrupted the family several times over, and in an effort to save the family and save the home, several um, financially advantageous but loveless marriages have uh, been contracted just to keep the family and that place afloat. So honors and promotions do not always accompany a job well done. You know, the John Churchill got some awards, but all the men who actually fought and won that battle didn't get much. And honors and promotion aren't always as great as they may seem at the first. So what can we learn about Daniel and how he handled his promotion? Well, Daniel said yes to a new and challenging opportunity. Or at least he stepped into that new and challenging opportunity. And he did so because I think of this, this sort of corny phrase. Um, Daniel saw this as a God opportunity, not necessarily a good opportunity. Because at the end of the day, he knew that Nebuchadnezzar was a madman for all intents and purposes. I love that phrase this morning. I'm going to use it a lot. And so saying yes to the king is not necessarily a promotion that he would have sought after. If Daniel had his way, he might have said, Nebuchadnezzar, what I would really like is to go back home. I want to go back to Jerusalem. I want to see my family. I want to see my friends. If you want to appoint me someplace, appoint me as a governor over Jerusalem. Appoint me as a governor in Israel. But I don't think Daniel had that opportunity. But he, but he stepped into it knowing that it was a God opportunity, not just a good opportunity. Because he knew that ultimately it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar who was making him the, giving him the role. It was God. Psalm 75.7 says this, the psalmist sort of echoes this prayer of Daniel, he says, it is God who judges, he brings one down and he exalts another. It's a major leap to jump overnight from being a nobody to becoming a somebody, but Daniel seems to take it in stride and he seems to see this as a natural ebb and flow to following and trusting God. You see, following God is not like working your way up a corporate ladder. There are no guarantees when you're following God that the next step will be an improvement over the last. As we follow Daniel's story, we will find that Daniel will face more and graver challenges than, um, than a dream. The only guarantee that we are given in this life as believers is that Jesus goes with us each step. The same God who orders the steps of Daniel orders our steps as well. Now, I like to think about potential other outcomes. It could be, and this would have been a very real possibility in Daniel's mind and the, and the three uh, friends of his, 
But Daniel tells the king the dream, and the dream, because it reflects unfavorably on the legacy of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, instead of honoring Daniel, the king could have put him to death. But I believe Daniel has experienced God in both the highs and the lows of his life, and he has learned to trust God through both. God spared his life when the Babylonians conquered Israel. God brought him safely to his new home. God gave him favor with his overseer. God provided opportunities for him to study. God gave him wisdom and insight. God gave him faithful friends to share life and those challenges with. And when the time was right, God gave him favor before a reckless king. So Daniel sees this promotion as simply another opportunity for God to show his power and protection. So I, I reference this. Psalm 37 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So I want you to take just a moment and think about how God has ordered and directed your steps. You can close your eyes. Just give some thought to this. As you do, think about those seasons of chaos and confusion where there was fear and anxiety. And how did God lead you through it? Can you see how he has brought you to this place this morning? Maybe you're in the middle of one of those seasons right now. Your life just seems like you are daily facing and fighting an uphill battle. Are you able to thank him for this season despite the difficulties and the challenges? There's a song we sing. One of the verses of the, one of the lines of the chorus goes like this, what I sing on the mountain, I'll sing in the valley. God is always good. I want to have that attitude. I got to admit, I don't always sing in the valley what I sing on the mountaintop. But whether I sing it or not, it's true. God is always good. Amen. So Daniel uses his blessing to bless others. This is the second half of this. So he goes back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, Hey guys, I got some great news. You're not going to die. <laughs> and I've got you a job with City Hall. <laughs> Those of you who have experience with City Hall may know that maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't as excited about that as, uh, as Daniel might have hoped they would be. But it was not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were blessed because of Daniel. Think about how many others within that kingdom would be blessed by having humble and ethical and most of all prayerful leaders heading and directing those departments that ruled and organized that great city. Who has been a blessing to you? Who has helped you get to where you are? How often do you pray for those who hold or in this election season, who might hold elected office and authority over the direction of our city, our state, our country. Have you prayed for them? Maybe you, have you been able to bless those who have strengthened you and encouraged you and promoted you? Have you been able to bless them in return? Daniel's friends prayed 
They were partners of his. They collaborated that evening in desperate prayer, and Daniel didn't forget them when he was put into a position of authority. Several years back, um, it's been like in the 90s, I was offered a job with uh, a church in this region, and um, it was a good position. And at the time, I was sort of in sort of limbo. Um, but the church had a lot of internal issues, and honestly, I thought, I, if I'm going to hitch my wagon to any star, I want to hitch my wagon to uh, Southside Christian Church. So uh, I said yes to Southside, and I said no to this other church, because again, that other church was just too much. It's like, nah, I just don't see how that's going to work. Well, lo and behold, within a couple of months, that church was thriving. God was blessing it. The numbers were increasing. They were running in the hundreds, and Sherwood Oaks was, I mean, not Sherwood Oaks, Southside was dipping down, and I was scratching my head going, God, what? I've made a horrible decision. At the same time, I'm like, how can you be blessing them because of what I know and all the stuff that's going on? How can you be doing that? And someone very wisely gave me this advice. You need to pray for your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When I was, I would drive by that church every day. And the feelings of just a mixture of frustration and um, irritation and resentment were very real. And I began to pray for that church every time I passed by it. And the first couple times it was hard because I felt like I knew too much. <laughs> I knew exactly what to pray for those people. But within a few weeks, I began to really pray for those, that church. And um, God continued to bless it. Thank you for, to my prayers. Uh, I feel like they still owe me a little bit for that. Um, <laughs> but what changed really was my attitude. And I saw them less as competitors and um, co-workers. And yeah, they do it differently than I would. And their leadership takes a different a different approach than I would, but God used them very effectively in people's lives. Matthew 5, 43, this was, this was who gave me the good advice. It was Jesus. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and he causes his son to rise on the good. And he sends rain to the righteous. And he sends rain to the unrighteous. God, God doesn't really play favorites with his blessings, does he? So in the end, I, I did what I think I should have done. I prayed for the people that God were using. And I celebrated their wins because the kingdom of heaven is not a competition. And we're going to close with just a few thoughts here. Here's what I take from this, and I'm going to pray that God will speak to you, and maybe God will lay the same things on your heart, or maybe there's other things you're taking from this this morning. But the first thing is this, that God brings low and God raises up. 
God brings both sun and rain into our lives on the just and the unjust. And because God is the one who determines who he's raising up and who he's setting down, it's a good reminder that our faithfulness is no guarantee of earthly material success. We look at the story and we say, well, because of God's faith, because of Daniel's faithfulness, God, God allowed him to serve in the court of a king. But we also have to say this, that because of Jesus' faithfulness, God sent him to a cross. So your faithfulness is not a contract with God. We recognize that our times and our life, our seasons, are in God's hands and subject to God's wisdom. His ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. And so because God is in charge, as believers, we do not waste time in regret or envy. We don't regret the past. We're not anxious about the future. And we certainly do not envy the fortunes of others. There's this old hymn. It's older than me, at least. It says this, why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely when Jesus is my portion? He's a constant friend. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know, and I know he watches me. Do you all know the, the way this song goes? Can you sing it with me? I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. The second verse of that hymn goes like this, Let not your heart be troubled, his tender word I hear. And resting on his goodness, God is always good. I lose my doubts and fears, though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. That's a great promise, isn't it? He clothes the lilies of the field, he keeps an eye on the sparrow, and he can take care of us as well.